these are dark days for the people of God. In the time of Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 9, it's happening around 730 years before Christ, 730 B.C., God's people are in a very bad way. The surrounding nations are viciously attacking. And instead of trusting God like Isaiah calls him to do, wicked King Ahaz calls for help from the cruel Assyrians. And they come. Oh, they come all right. They crush Judah's enemies, Syria and Israel. But they end up dominating and oppressing Judah as well. We read about that in chapter 8. The water rushes in and comes into Judah and comes up to the neck. It almost drowns even Judah, this invasion of the Assyrians. And so this help of the Assyrians came with a very heavy price. Ahaz tries to hold on to the throne by being all obsequious to the Assyrian king. He rushes up to Damascus to meet him. And he learns from all the foreign gods and all the idolatry in Damascus and from the Assyrians. He comes back and he he implements that in Jerusalem. Introduces foreign gods and foreign altars and foreign worship. Worship of darkness and, and death. And to get an idea of how bad things get, Ahaz even sacrifices his son in the fire. He kills his own son as an act of worship to an idol. And then on top of all of that, you know what he does? He closes the temple, shuts the doors, closes it up. The temple is the way back to God. The temple is the place where he dwells and can be approached by sinners. The temple is where his word is taught and where sin is dealt with. But it's closed. So there's no light. There's no hope. People of God are in a very dark place. And to this people who walk in darkness, God comes with the gospel. He always does. Oh God, he speaks a lot of words of judgment. He sure does. But he always ends with the gospel. And so God promises the light of the world to a people who walk in darkness. And we'll see three things in the sermon this morning. The darkness of despair, the longed for light, and finally the rising of the sun. First of all, then the darkness of despair. That starts in chapter 8, verse 19. So the world is turned upside down. That The neighboring countries have been steamrolled by the Assyrian juggernaut. And the throne of Judah hangs by a thread. The Assyrians afflict and oppress rather than help Judah. So how do the people respond? How do they deal with this? Well, they, they run to the mediums and necromancers. They run to the people that look for answers in the murky world of the spirits and the dead. This is God's people we're talking about. They turn their backs on the bright, clear light of the living word. And they choose to grope around in darkness with shadowy figures who chirp and mutter 
and mumble the counsels of the kingdom of death. And Isaiah prophesies to this people. He says, basically, what is your problem? Seriously. Do you consult the dead on behalf of the living? Give your head a shake, people of Judah. Look at him in verse 20. To the teaching, to the testimony. And the word teaching in verse 20 in Hebrew is the word Torah, Torah. It's the law. It's the word of God. You're looking for answers. Don't look in all the wrong places. Look to the word. Look to the testimony. Because every attempt of man to solve his own problems ends up in despair. You're running in every direction looking for answers. But the answer is right before your eyes. And that answer you are rejecting and you are despising. What does the testimony say? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so rejecting the word is rejecting the only hope and the only light that we have in this dark world. And so when we reject the word, we choose eternal night. See that at the end of verse 20? They do not speak according to this word. It is because they have no dawn. It's going to be dark forever. And it's never going to get better. No dawn. Imagine the horror of that. You're waiting for the light of day to, to shine over the horizon. It just doesn't come. No hope of a new day. Instead of contentment, there is hunger. Instead of relief, There is oppression. Instead of praise, there is blasphemy. Look at these people in verse 21. They're reaping what they have sown. They've turned their backs on God. They've turned their backs on the word of life. And everything's going wrong because it always does, doesn't it? When we turn our backs on the word. Everything's going wrong. And when things go wrong, what do they do? Do they repent? Do they say, oh, wow, God, we need you so badly. We've got to turn around. No, they rage. They speak contemptuously against God and all authority, and they hate. And then they look. They look around on the earth. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's just anguish and darkness. That's life. Without God. Well, that's basically a description of our modern world too, isn't it? We live in dark times. We live in a time of violence, of wars and rumors of wars. A time of despair and fear. Fear about so many things, about the economy, about the climate. Fear, conflict, upheaval in society. All kinds of Massive movements that are sweeping through, uh, especially the Western world. Trying to devour traditional values. Trying to attack the message of the gospel. And then those movements also end up attacking and devouring one another. The family is under attack. There are attempts to erase and confuse 
erase and confuse creational institutions like biological sex, male and female, marriage. Everything's being turned upside down. Everything's in a state of confusion. And where do people turn? Where do they look for answers? They run off in every direction. They go to pop psychology. They go to medication. They go to substance abuse. They go to hedonism. They go to mysticism. They go to the modern versions of the ancient gods. To look for answers. To get counsel. To find some meaning. And so we have it today that we live in a land where secularism and sexual perversion are the new de facto established religion in Canada, together with its bloody sacrament of abortion, which is sacrificing more than 100,000 little babies every year. These are dark times we live in. And movies, TV, social media, books, magazines, conversations with people around us at work and at school, they all say the same thing. This is good. Do what you want. Believe in yourself. Follow your dreams. Do it your way. People hate the darkness. They don't like the brokenness that comes with turning your back on God. They hate the darkness. But they hate God even more. You see... Fallen, sinful, rebellious man would rather embrace the darkness than embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. It was back in the 19th century already that this very modern piece of poetry was written. It's called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Listen to this guy. Listen to him, how he grapples with the darkness. And listen what his solution is to the darkness. He says, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the answer of fallen, rebellious man in the darkness and suffering which the darkness and rebellion bring upon him. Rage against God. Rage against everything, but embracing and insisting on continuing in sin. Well, how do God's people fare in all of this? You know, too many times God's people are carried along in the current We see the church in many places of the world adopting a cultural hermeneutic where we interpret the scripture in a way which pleases the world around us. And so the church says, well, we've got to accept the lie of evolutionism. We've got to accept the breakdown of marriage. We've got to just permit fornication, boyfriends and girlfriends living together. We've got to accept unbiblical divorce for any reason. Because that's what's acceptable in the world. And the church has to stay relevant. 
And there's no end to that. As we apply the cultural hermeneutic, we end up even in the end, not just tolerating, not just accepting, but even celebrating sexual perversion. And then we accept the world's idea of the role of man and woman and the relationship between the sexes. You see, we, when we close the word and we listen to the world, we are consulting with the dead to figure out how to think, how to decide, how to live. We look for deathly answers from people who are dead in their sins and trespasses. You know what God says to all of that? He says, sorry, there's no light here. And so I will thrust you into thick darkness. Look there at the end of verse 22. You know, thick darkness. Scripture speaks about the outer darkness as being the place that is far from the presence of God. God dwells in unapproachable light. And far from him, there is only thick outer darkness, hell and eternal death. And so... That's the darkness of despair that we see in our text. But to a people who are walking in this darkness, God promises light. And we see that in the second point, the longed for light as we move into chapter chapter 9. Now what's fascinating is where God brings the dawning of the light. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought her to contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. The mercy is given to the people that are most despised. You see, the darkness is in the capital city, Jerusalem. The elite, the powerful, the movers, the shakers, the arrogant, the sophisticated, the clever. But the mercy comes to the people way up there in the back country. The hicks, the people that don't know nothing. The simple people, the humble the despised, they will be the first to see the dawn of a new day. See, Zebulun and Naphtali way up in the north, they were far from the power center. It's kind of like, if we're talking about Canada, it would be like Labrador. What kind of influence does Labrador have on the movers and shakers in Ottawa and Toronto? far from the power center, far from the political and religious elites. This is Galilee of the Gentiles. You know why it's called Galilee of the Gentiles? Well, Galilee, because it's around the Sea of Galilee area, and of the Gentiles, because this is the first place that would get kicked in the head when the foreign nations would invade the land. Every time a foreign power would come, usually it was the north that got it first. They were overrun first. And they've been crushed many times in the history of God's people. And now, says the prophet, they will be the first to witness D-Day. When the glorious light of the gospel explodes into this dark and sinful reality. When the kingdom of heaven will establish a beachhead beginning the beginning of the end for the kingdom of darkness. Yes, verse 2 The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. God remembers his covenant. And he gives and shows the brightness of his light and love most intensely to those most oppressed by darkness and sin 
and shame. What the prophet is saying is, is this, don't despair, people of God. These are dark times, but wait on the Lord. Because usually he waits till, till it seems that all is lost. And there is no hope. And there's no way out. And that's often when God acts. And look how the prophet speaks. Look at the tense of the verbs. The people who walked in darkness have seen the great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. He's speaking about the future. But he's using verbs that are in the past tense. You know why? That's the the Holy Spirit's way of saying to us that this is a sure thing. It's going to happen. It's so certain, I'm speaking about it as if it has already happened. Now in chapter 8, verse 17, we read about the people waiting on God. God's hiding his face from his people, but, but all they can do is, is just hope in him. That's all they can do. And to these people that wait on the Lord, Isaiah has words of comfort. He speaks about darkness transformed into light. But not just that. Look at verse 3. To this little group of faithful remnant that's still serving God. He's getting kicked around by everybody, by the world, then by the false church, by the people that have betrayed God and the covenant. They're mocked, you bunch of, you little bunch of irrelevant people. Why do you change and get with the times? You know what the prophet says to them? You have multiplied the nation. This little group is going to be multiplied into a great nation. Anguish will be transformed into joy and rejoicing and gladness. And there's going to be so much joy. You know when you work really hard through the summer and you get the crops in, and when it's all in, you have a party. You rejoice in the harvest. You know after you've had a a terrible battle and you fought hard and then you have the victory, then you have this glorious celebration. That's what it's going to be like, says the prophet. Look at verse 4. Because the, the yoke is going to be broken. The rod of the oppressor is going to be broken. It's going to be like the time of the day of Midian. You remember that? What was the day of Midian? That was the day when Gideon, he routed the Midianites with just 300 men. Tiny little group set to flight. An army which covered the country like locusts. And so, God's people is oppressed in every way, politically, culturally, spiritually, oppressed by a godless nation, a godless government, and a godless church. All seems dark. All seems hopeless. But the prophet says, you know what? There is going to be an almighty bonfire. It's going to be a bonfire. Look at verse 5. What is the bonfire for? It's to burn up the boots and the bloody garments. What does that mean? Well, that's what you did at the end of the battle when you were victorious. You went out, you collected all the bloody remnants of the enemy's equipment, and you burned it because they, they were taken down. They were taken out. The enemies wiped out. So these are words of hope that the prophet gives to the people for the, for the future. What about us? What do these words speak to us? Because you know that every prophecy of Scripture has so many levels. And it also speaks to us today. We live in a time when true religion is oppressed. 
All that is holy is mocked and hunted. Just last year, or just recently, we had a near miss when, when the government was rejecting the faith statements of our schools. They wanted to force Christian schools to allow opening up of clubs which celebrate sexual perversity. They wanted to tell us what we can believe and what we can't believe. That's getting worse all the time, isn't it? Today, we live in a world in which when you say men cannot give birth, then you are seen as intolerant and hateful. We live in dark times. Scary times as we look at our children and wonder what kind of a world they're going to be living in, our grandchildren. The prophet reminds us that God does not forget. The prophet reminds us that we we need to wait on the Lord. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And it is after the darkest moments that dawn, that day finally dawns. God is faithful to his covenant. God will come to the aid of his church. And even though we sometimes feel that we're so few as a faithful remnant, the day is coming when everything and everyone that raises itself against the church and the children of God will be wiped from the map. Everything that afflicts and torments and harasses the children of God, God will take away. So we need to be doing what the people were doing in the time of Isaiah. We need to be crying out to God. You see, the world is crowding in on us. All around us, the powers of the kingdom of darkness press in upon us and attack us. The devil mocks us. Our own flesh is a fifth column within us, which is always trying to open up the door for for darkness to come in. And so we're fighting on the outside. We're struggling on the inside. And, and the kingdom of darkness is warring against our souls. And we struggle to keep the small, weak candle of our faith alive in a world so dark and so full of temptations and doubts and confusion and brokenness and addictions and perversions, which if they can't seduce us, try to capture us or oppress us by brute force, or by the force of law. And to people that walk in this darkness, we have seen a great light. For us, the past tense is really past. The great light has already dawned. To those who dwell in deep darkness, light has shone. It is certain that the day has begun to dawn. The light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Earth's vain shadows will flee. The enemies will be routed. All that will be left is the joy and the glory of the eternal victory celebration. What does Malachi say to us in chapter 4 verse 2? But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. 
So to the people who walk in darkness, God promises the light of the world. We've seen the darkness of despair. We've considered the longed-for light. Now we come to the last point, the rising of the sun. And we're at verse 6 now of chapter 9. Well, we can, we can ask, Isaiah, how do you know? You're talking about all this victory. You're talking about the dawning of the light. You're talking about the darkness being taken away. How do you know what's going to happen? What makes you so sure, Isaiah? And then Isaiah tells us in verse 6, he says, for, because. You know why? You know why I know this is going to happen? Because a child is born. And maybe the people back then, and maybe we here, we say, wait a minute. What are you saying, Isaiah? The sophisticated and the powerful in the world and in the church are oppressing true religion. There are massive political, cultural, social, religious movements seeking to devour us with their God-hating, demonic, substitute religion. And you say that it's all going to be okay because a baby will be born. That, that's the answer. Well, yes, that's the answer. But this is not just any baby. And we have to understand, too, that in the last chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8, Isaiah has already mentioned babies. In chapter 7, he prophesied about a virgin giving birth to a child who would be called Emmanuel. That sign came true. First of all, in his time, and then later on at the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 8, we read about another sign. The prophet says, you know, my little baby that was just born, before he can say daddy or mommy, those enemies of ours are going to be wiped out. And that happened. So the baby that was born in chapter 7 and the baby that was born in chapter 8 were signs of promises of God, and those promises came true. So Isaiah has a pretty good track record when he's prophesying about babies as signs. And here we come to the third baby. The other two came true. But the third baby is not any baby. The third baby was born in Galilee of the Gentiles. He spent most of his childhood and ministry in Nazareth and Capernaum. Now, I wonder where that is. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 for a moment. Matthew 4, verse 12. Where is... Galilee, where the Lord Jesus was born and ministered. Well, look at Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. We've met that, 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 uh, those names in, in the first verse of chapter 9 of Isaiah. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is the baby that Isaiah is prophesying about. It's our Lord Jesus. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You know, back in verse 3 of chapter 9, 
the prophet said that God will multiply the nation. He will make that little remnant of believers into a large nation. But in Christ, it's even bigger than that. The light of the world is born in Galilee to bring life and bring it abundantly, not just to a remnant, not just to a great nation of Israel, but to all of the nations. He comes to save a multitude that no man can number from every nation and tribe and people and language. What does Isaiah say in chapter 49? He says, in the name of God, he says this, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And Isaiah says in chapter 60, the nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. This is a prophecy of a savior of the world. And who is this? Who is the fulfillment of this prophecy? Let's turn to Luke chapter 1 for a moment. Luke chapter 1, we'll look at the song of Zechariah. Luke 1, 76. Zechariah is prophesying about what his little boy will do in the, in the future. He says, You child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah says, you know what? I've read Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm looking at him right now. This is him. He has come. And what does Simeon say? Simeon says the same thing. Simeon knew his Bible too. Luke chapter 2 verse 30. If you turn there briefly, Luke 2 30. He says, oh Lord, now I can go in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for glory to your people, Israel. So this baby Jesus, the light of the world. What does the prophet say about him? The government will be on his shoulder. He's going to be in charge. Not this wicked King Ahaz. Not the cruel Assyrians. Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the one who sets me free from all the dominion of the devil. Now, when Isaiah is prophesying these words of our text, we still have 700 years to go. It's a long time. It's far in the future. But Isaiah just can't hold himself back. He's just overcome with excitement as he proclaims the wonderful names of our Savior, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful because he takes away our breath. Because he's the only name under heaven by which man can be saved. Because his is the name which when confessed means life eternal and when blasphemed means eternal curse. A wonderful counselor. You know, he's a king that doesn't need advisors and counselors because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor 
And in all the cacophony of modern life, all of the conflicting messages which are telling us this is the way to happiness. This is how you solve your problems. In all the noise of the humanism and the false religion and the siren call of a thousand temptations and doubts which assail our souls, only Jesus is worth listening to because he is the wonderful counselor. Have you figured that out yet? You know, whenever we go listen to someone else, how does that work out? Who is running your life? Are you going by the counsel of the wicked or by what the wonderful counselor is telling you? And he's a mighty God. You know, why run after any other savior when the Lord Jesus is the only one who is powerful to save? When he is the sovereign ruler of the universe and the sovereign ruler of your life. When he is the king of kings. When he is the lord of lords. To whom else shall we turn? And he is the everlasting father. That's pretty amazing. A son will be born and he will be called everlasting father. How can this be true of anyone except the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus said, I and the father are one. Whoever sees me has seen the father. He who was born in Bethlehem is God of God, light of light, true God of true God. He came. He was born. He was made man to bring light and glory to his people. And he is the prince of peace. You know, the temple was shot down back in Isaiah's day. There were no offerings to speak of the hope of reconciliation and pardon. There was no peace between God and sinner reconciled. No peace amongst the people. There was terror. There was conflict. There was war. But the prophecy says a mighty prince will invade. He will invade not with war and death, but with life and light and peace. Jesus came not to hurt, not to destroy, not to oppress you with guilt and all kinds of demands. If that's the Jesus that you know, or Jesus who's telling you, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you're not good enough, you need to feel guilty, then you don't know who Jesus is. Because Jesus came to bring peace to our troubled, sin-burdened souls. Peace to our marriage relationships. Peace to brothers and sisters who are in conflict. Peace to the one who is consumed with doubt about the very truths of the gospel. Peace to a world living in the midst of such stress and anxiety and fear. Peace which fills the heart. Peace which transforms life. Peace which was announced by the angels at his birth when they cried out from the heavens, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Peace bought at the high price of his suffering and death. As the apostle says, justified by faith in Christ crucified, we have peace with God. Peace for Jews and for Greeks, for Israel and for the world. He came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Peace which passes understanding.
peace of the whole universe. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now you may get the idea that this is not just some fleeting, shallow, temporary peace that we're talking about. It's not the kind of fake peace that we get when we give in to our sins and temptations, when we feed our addictions or surrender to the temptations and doubts which assail us. This is true peace. This is lasting peace. This is infinite peace because he is the prince of peace and of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. It's going to be more and more and more forever and ever. Now, this Savior has powerful names, and he has an equally powerful government. He governs in the power of these excellent names. His government is wonderful and wise and almighty and eternal and full of paternal kindness and love. And his government is characterized by peace and stability. This baby is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. This baby is the fulfillment of the promises of God to David and his descendants that there would always be a king on David's throne. Nothing will stop him. But his kingdom will grow And grow and grow and increase until there is no thing and there is no person left who does not bow the knee and does not cry, Jesus is Lord. So we've seen the people walking in darkness. We've seen them longing for the light. And we've seen the proclamation of a new day which will dawn. The sun of righteousness will arise. It's all promised in the prophecy. You know what God does at the very end of our text? He signs it. He guarantees it with his signature. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What is zeal? Zeal is the holy jealousy that God has for his bride. The holy, jealous, burning, eternal love that he has for us in Christ. And he will stop at nothing to save her. He even gives up his own son to die for her. And anything which threatens the apple of his eye. Anything which threatens his bride. Anything which tries to attack her, to afflict her, to oppress her. He will destroy. Come up to December 25th. And I just checked it. December 21st, we get to the shortest day of the year. I think it's seven hours and 38 minutes of daylight. And the days stay sh- that short till the 24th. And on the 25th, the day becomes one minute longer. It's the beginning of more and more light. You know, this is a really, we don't know 
There's a lot of questions and a lot of discussions about when exactly the Lord Jesus was born. But this is an awesome time, a very appropriate time to celebrate the birth of the light of the world. Even the, the world, even the false church are celebrating the coming of Christ. Well, they celebrate their own destruction. The birth of Christ means death to all who deliberately continue to embrace the darkness and reject the light of the gospel. But the birth of Christ means life for all who long for the dawning of a new day, all who embrace the word of God, all who wait for the light of the world to dispel the darkness once and for all. That light began to shine 2,000 years ago in Galilee of the Gentiles. It's getting brighter and brighter and brighter until the day when there will be no more night. You know, that goes both ways. Whatever you embrace gets more and more intense for all eternity. If you embrace the darkness, it's going to get worse forever and ever. But if you embrace the light, it's just going to shine more and more into all eternity. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter unto the full light of day. Amen.